I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, and I'm also the daughter of a mother who lived with dementia for 30 years, and it changed my life, and that is why Alzheimer's Speaks exists today. Our goal here, for those of you that are new to our show, um, is basically to raise all voices, and Alzheimer's Speaks is, bottom line, an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And we also help companies expand their brand footprint by leveraging our content to increase access to products, services, and tools to those in need. And there are many, many people uh, needing uh, information, just like my family did. I want to thank all of our loyal listeners. You guys have been so great. In fact, we just found out we were in the top 10 podcasts for Alzheimer's. I think actually we were the original ones. We started back in 2011 or so. That's what people have told me around the world in terms of focusing on dementia and how we give care and being inclusive again of all voices. So your likes, your clicks, your shares with your Facebook friends, your Twitter tribe, your LinkedIn colleagues, um, whatever circles you may be in. Again, I just thank you so much because the more information we can get out to the public, the more comfortable uh, someone feels grabbing it when they're in need. Now, today on the show, you can always call in if you have questions or comments that you'd like to add to the conversation at 323-874602. That's 323-870-4602. And um, you can always go to our main website, alzheimerspeaks.com, where you can connect to all of our initiatives and find out information on keynotes and trainings and our social media platforms as well. Uh, let's see, what else do I have on my plate today? I have to talk about the Megathon. I went out to uh, Washington at the Microsoft uh, office for the Stall Catchers Megathon. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with Stall Catchers, it's way cool. It's a game that was developed by Eyes on Alls, and it is, it's actually a game that is free to anyone to play, but we actually get to analyze real-life data. And they were hoping on Saturday to get 100,000 people to play for an hour, and they projected in that hour's time they would um, save one year in research time. We had some technical difficulties, so that didn't happen. But again, you can play anytime, and I'm hoping that they're going to do um, these team searches um, on a regular basis there. So go to stallcatchers.com and sign up and help push research forward. The other uh, thing that I want to mention to you is Dementia Action Alliance is having their second North America Dementia Conference June 20th through the 22nd in Atlanta, Georgia. And what I love about their conference is the majority of their speakers actually have dementia. And so you are hearing from people living and breathing with dementia and how they would like to see the world um, react and deal and provide them comfort and care so that they can still live purposeful-filled lives. Last, I just want to mention a couple of upcoming events that I have that are free and open to the public. This Friday, April 19th from 1030 to 1230, I will be at Gable Pines in Vadness Heights, Minnesota, and I will be doing a program called Dementia Care is Changing, Are You? And then on April 26th, I will be back out at Gable Pines again. Uh, That's also a Friday from 1030 to 1230. We're going to be talking about the realities of dementia and family-friendly tools and tips that can help. So I'd love to see you come out and join us if you are in the area. 
Now, today is going to be a really special program. Um, the, the woman that I have on today is so dynamic, and I have not met her in person, but I've had the opportunity to talk with her on the phone several times, and I just so enjoy my conversations uh, with Dr. Linda Bain Frizzle, who is with the University of Minnesota's uh, School of Public Health. Dr. Frizzle has extensive experience in practice as a provider and administrator with Indian Health Systems. She holds a doctorate degree in physiology, education administration, and um, gerontology, and a postdoctorate in epidemiology. Her endeavors have included a broad range of professional um, preparation, both in medicine and also in education. She is totally, totally dedicated to improving the quality of life across one's lifespan. So welcome, Dr. Frizzle. So, So thrilled to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much. I'm so honored to be invited. Well, you you are just a, a bundle of um, enthusiasm, and I just love your resilience. You just keep charging forward with your beliefs, and I think we need more people like that. Now, before I start on our, on our regular line of questioning that I've outlined, I always like to ask our guests if they've ever been touched by any form of dementia within their own family or circle of friends. And if you're not comfortable answering that, that's perfectly fine as well. Well, I, I can't really say whether it was dementia or not, but my mother uh, had some memory loss issues, uh, but I could never determine whether it was on purpose or not after my father died. Uh, they were quite the pair, and so um, some of the lack of attention that she was getting or she felt she was getting, I think, attributed to some of that memory loss. Okay, great. Now, can you tell our audience um, what are some of the general awareness needs for memory impairment and loss that you see um, the communities need? Well, generally, we tend to forget about uh, uh, the multiracial environment that we live in, uh, multi-ethnical, and then uh, the differences between our communities, in particular the subcultures within communities. There is, honestly, no two communities that are exactly alike. And so it's really important that uh, if you're going to do a program within a community that you consult with those stakeholders and listen to them because the attributes and resilience uh, are are quite different. And it needs to be something that the community has chosen to do, whether or not they're they're ready to talk about some or not. So so that's important. The other thing is, uh, at least in our state of Minnesota, it it would be great. uh, We don't currently have it, but a, a consistent, valid memory loss um, uh, through statewide messaging and messaging and awareness uh, to uh, contribute to risk reduction. And then my next uh, area, uh, uh, Lori knows quite well, uh, I worked for the state of Minnesota for about five years at a residential facility where we had different diagnoses for folks, but they're all incarcerated, basically uh, folks that uh, could not be kept in a uh, mom and pa uh, nursing home. And what I would like to, and I'll discuss this more, too, if people want to hear, but I have found that using the A word, and never I use that in committees, people go, huh? I go, no, no, think about it. The A word, Alzheimer's. And in the populations I've served over the last 25 years, it's it's a um, death diagnosis. And so the stigma that goes with that actually prohibits people from seeking uh, services whenever they start to develop memory loss. First thing they have to understand is memory loss is not a normal part of aging. But the stigma and the fear of people, I mean, it's worse than a cancer diagnosis. And sometimes, you know, it could be something as minor if they were to seek professional help, at least in this uh, time of year in Minnesota because it's so dry, of dehydration causes memory loss. More likely than not, uh, with elders with the multiple medications that they uh, take, uh, there may be some interaction between that, and that needs to be reviewed. Um, but it's not uh, its not a, a memory loss issue that's due to anything uh, long-term like dementia um, or other types of uh, uh, memory loss issues. Um, the thing that I, that I really like to stress 
is the fact that, um, and I teach a class in that this semester, is in cultural humility. And we have to understand and respect that every individual has their own culture. Just a second, something beeping on my phone. Anyhow, the thing is, um, if you don't practice cultural humility, um, you're going to be hard-pressed uh, to provide any sort of valid service to the people that you're working with. And cultural humility uh, starts with just by acknowledging the individual and to be respectful of what their wishes are. Also understanding that even within families, there's different subcultures that affect. So using cultural humility is, is an absolute basis. And then lastly, uh, in this particular topic, um, it's really important uh, to fil facilitate some sort of awareness of access to needed care and services, especially for those uh, with limited access. And I, I was born and raised rural. Uh, I, I work in uh, uh, Minneapolis right now. Oh, it's a stressor because I am a rural person. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so um, my home area is in the uh, north-central part of the state. And we've done uh, research up there, meaning the university. And sadly, now this is probably about a 25,000 population service area. We have one, one provider that has the ability to access uh, or to assess uh, memory loss um, degrees and impairment. Oh, my uh, That's gosh. not good. Yeah, that, that, that is absolutely not good. That's just shocking. I mean, I, I don't think, and, you know, there's so much that we don't know and that people don't know in general until they need a service. And then all of a sudden you find out it's not available or you you find out maybe after the fact that services were available, but you didn't even know what they were called or, or where to go to. And all of that just needs to to change. I, I love when you're talking about the, the cultural humility. I think, I think we've lost that as a society at large, you know, our, our ability to be apathetic and to be respectful. And we seem to be on this my way or the highway type thing. And, and healthcare in, in some ways has come a long ways, um, but we, we need to go so, so much further um, in terms of training and development with all of this, um, with our families and, and our professionals alike with that. Um, the other thing, you know, you had talked about the, the, stigma, uh, the stigma of the A word, you know, using the word Alzheimer's. Um, but I know that you, you've got some feelings like with dementia and the word cognitive is, as well, um, because a lot of people don't know necessarily what those words mean or what they what they infer, and everyone kind of wraps them up in a, in a little different package um, when they're speaking. And so I, I'm with you. I think we have to speak in the people's language and not convert them to the, the medical language, you know, that we need to use whatever they're comfortable with in hearing. Otherwise, they're going to block it all out. Um, and like you said, they're not, they're not going to reach out for help or support that might be there, uh, you know, for them. So those are, those are wonderful points. Um, thank you so much for sharing those. Anything else you wanted to add in that area, Linda? Well, in regarding stigma, you know, I, I'm of the elder age and, um, uh, uh, I just remember that whenever I was a youngster, first of all, I was taught to be seen and not heard, which at the time I thought, well, that's a bummer, but it did seem to work out okay. But even in uh, regard to the word, de word dementia, for my age group and, and older, uh, those individuals were slangly referred to in communities as, quote, demented. So even the term dementia has a negative con connotation. And why should we use words like cognitive whenever we could use terms like knowledge, which everybody understands. I just think it's important, and, uh, you know, preventing memory loss is such a benefit if, if we can reach people that will seek professional help. We just shouldn't throw up roadblocks or, or, or stigma uh, in regards. Some cultures actually um, have issues um, with, with uh, people who uh, are uh, experiencing memory loss of whatever degree. And so we have to be real careful about that too. But I just I just want everybody to be able to access and participate in the best uh, uh, 
care and services that they can. And I hate to see words uh, that negate that. Yeah, and and I think sometimes we're not we're not all that sensitive, you know. We just we kind of jump in and go, "This is what's used." And I, I know as a community at large, when I talk to people around the world, dementia seems to be the word that's bubbled to the top, even though it has you know the connotation of being demented. I think through education, there's been more understanding. And what what I hear from people with dementia in their families nowadays, um, and you may be hearing something different, so I'd love to hear that. But um, what I'm hearing from them is 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 bottom line stop screwing with the words let's just stick with dementia and let's get on with services that we need in a cure because (laughs) we're never ever going to please everybody um and so that's kind of what they're saying is stop fighting about it they got they were very irritated when it was always referred to as alzheimer's because many of them had different types of dementia frontal temporal lobe vascular Lewy body didn't make any difference and they said you know there's more similarities between them all than not so pool it and you know make this umbrella understanding and, and just do more educating so that there's not as much fear what are your thoughts yeah, on that? I agree. I, I agree. That, that's where we have to start. And my experience in, in uh, even working with youngsters in K-12, you know, if they explain what the um, uh, illness is, the situation, uh, the other children who ha- may have a condition don't get bullied. And right now in our society, bullying seems to be widespread. And any excuse to do that, to show that somebody's different, uh, uh, is not something that we should be promoting. So I, I agree. There's other language. Uh, the other term that I've never heard recently, uh, and my great-grandmother was, quote, said to have this, but she had hardening of the arteries. Oh, and yeah. That was, and that was a term which it seemed to be accepted. And it's like, okay, well, then this person uh, needs to have support or uh, would generally be dependent on others to provide services. So, you know, like I say, words are everything. And whenever mm-hmm. anybody works with a community, it's best to find out what those acceptable terms are because it may yeah. be different. It may it may shock you. But in the same sense, it, if you practice cultural humility, you will ask, and the community, if they choose to, will step up and share with you. But um, uh, that's why I say I, I, the term the terms are just a big deal. But we can start to educate uh, people on that too, as you suggest. Yeah. Well, like you said, asking the right questions and then listening and then actually incorporating what you've heard into, mm-hmm. you know, the the information. Senility was another one. And some people have talked about, well, let's just call it a degenerative brain. Um, and then there's another side that says, no, people will misunderstand that, too. And again, we just need so much more education out there and interactive um, pieces so that we are hearing from families and people diagnosed of of what it's really like for them and and raising their voice. What are some of the methods that you think we can use to reduce the risk of memory impairment or loss? Well, I I think, you know, being an old educator, old being the operative word, uh, I, I am really a proponent of education. And I'm suggesting education in all levels of life. And, you know, oftentimes our first responders, at least in rural America, are the best that we have to help the emergencies. We don't have a big enough population base for paramedics, but they need to have some training. Uh, Law enforcement certainly does. Town councils, uh, public safety councils, K-12 schools, which is my favorite because I've seen such good things that are done uh, in K-12 where the youngsters actually provide their parents the um, uh, attributes of the education that they've learned in, in the school setting. And what what a better place, you know, that's the first first round of defense is in our K-12 schools and the teachers. And so, you know, just so much that we can do through education, but it has to be general enough that it doesn't alienate people. And it has to be responsive enough that, that people feel um, uh, comfortable in asking the questions. I know... Uh, I'm not sure which agency in Minneapolis, but they just have a memory loss department. I'm like, well, everybody knows what that is, memory loss, and it is not confrontational. Uh, People need to understand that, you know, uh, if they observe uh, 
their family or somebody, you know, talking all the time and chattering and repeating the same thing, that might be a problem. But uh, to feel confident to seek uh, uh, professional help whenever they start to show symptoms. The public doesn't understand what the signs and symptoms are uh, for memory loss, and that would be really helpful if we could do something like that. Yeah, that would be great. I, You know, when you were talking about the kids, I, I too think they are so powerful. I mean, I believe they're the ones that have gotten a lot of adults to stop smoking and wear their seatbelts because they came home and said and all of a sudden there was an emotional attachment of why to do that. You know, it's not for yourself. Now it's for, it's for your children and a bigger picture. And I, and I think that they can elevate the knowledge because their, their innocence and their acceptance is um, so grand. And it, it just, it makes you look at things different because they have a, a wider a wider brush they haven't been told it's you know it's this way or the highway you know there's only one way to do it um i think they're just a, a lot more fluid in terms of their thoughts and and open to having things smooth and connected and and they they see and they feel the differences when dementia touches their family in, in any, you know, state or form, you know, whatever word you're going to use for it. And they want to help, but a lot of times I think families think that they're protecting their children by not putting the burden on them, but they're full of energy and ideas and they want to help. And now the whole family has shifted and they don't really know why. And so it's, yeah. it's, very, it's very interesting to see that impact and to be able to empower them with knowledge. I, I love, love that idea. What do you think about, you know, the saying is, you know, what's good for the heart is good for the brain. Well, I'm an old physical education teacher. And uh, so I have all sorts of thoughts on uh, good cardiovascular help, but actually um, for my dissertation, I actually uh, had uh, subjects which had a uh, memory impairments some had a premature diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Some uh, had organic brain syndrome. Uh, a few had Huntington's Korea and so on. But the point being that, that these folks uh, knew what they had, but to be diverse enough uh, to be able to provide uh, uh, services. And so I did a life satisfaction survey. My whole intent was to uh, prove uh, that it, no, no matter what age, you could gain strength. And mm-hmm. uh, they did and to a significant level. And so it's important that people, you know, the old, the other adage is if you don't use it, you'll lose it. And so just uh, stimulation, uh, uh, mental activities uh, daily is important. That's why, you know, the link that I see between elders and youngsters, I, I see such a benefit for both. In some of our tribal schools, we actually have elders that come in uh, and uh, work with the teachers and especially in the area of language. And a lot of uh, tribes across the country have lost their language, but with the help of the elders, they've pieced it back together. And what I see, I just, uh, it's just a, almost a growth overnight. And what the elders uh, are receiving, uh, the kids come in, they hug them, and they talk to them. They're so proud. In the same sense, the children are so proud that is their grandma or mm-hmm. grandpa. And uh, so I just think, you know, that we need to uh, uh, keep people physically active. Uh, I think there's uh, issues uh, uh, right now with nutrition, uh, specifically nutrition safety. Uh, I think there's also some very uh, uh, high concerns that I have of the environment. And I say that uh, kind of reluctantly to your audience. But um, in the School of Public Health, uh, I have access to a lot of resources and they have found in the environment, particularly the Great Lakes, all of them, and all of our lakes in the state of Minnesota, a residual birth control uh, mm. component. And, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, in the Great Lakes, they can detect it. In our small lakes, they can detect it. Well, you think about what the trickle-down effect of that is, you know, the the uh, vegetation the animals that eat the vegetation, the animals that eat the other animals. Uh, I have real concerns about that. And, wow. and so I, I I think there's things that we need to uh, realize that happens in our environment 
which could very well, uh, we don't have any, uh, I'm not aware of any studies other than just general ones uh, that address that issue right now. But it's on our radar, and uh, we're trying to see what that impact may be. Can we as human beings evolve to protect ourselves against that? You know, back uh, whenever I was uh, in graduate school, they uh, uh, people were throwing out their aluminum pans because, you know, there was um, uh, detected aluminum uh, in brains of people that post-mortem had uh, Alzheimer's disease and some mm-hmm. of the amyloid uh, 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 plaque and so on. And now that's all kind of being dismissed because it's like the chicken or egg, you know, did this happen because of or was this there already? So I, I'm very concerned about, about our welfare, being able to maintain uh, healthy uh, 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 cognition and uh, mental uh, uh, purposes uh, for everyday life. And that, that's what I think is a challenge today. Yeah, it, it, you're right. It's so hard to know, like you said, chicken or the egg, what, what happens first. And you talked about you don't use it, you lose it. And I'm going to be 60 um, this summer. And it's like, oh, my gosh, I sit in front of my computer and I have, like, lost all my muscle mass. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I, just, I just flop and I keep spreading. And it's like, oh, I've got to get out. And I'm so glad it's nice. It's like I, I've got to get into a routine that allows me to move. And I have this, I have this horrible mentality of, no, I have to get this done. I have to get this done. And I've got to make it a priority because it's, I'm really, really noticing the the differences with that. And I know, I know I'm keeping my brain active by, you know, doing a lot of things and multitasking, though they're saying multitasking isn't so good anymore. You're better off just doing one thing at a time and making sure that we get, you know, that seven to eight hours sleep every night, which, you know, a lot of people weren't doing that either and um, eating healthier and in smaller bite sizes and, um, and then, you know, keeping those liquids, you know, the, the um, keeping hydrated. Uh, so many people I, I hear, you know, especially as they age, um, stop drinking their fluids because they're afraid they're going to have an accident. And then on top of the medications and stuff. And so you're right. There's lots of different things that can, can um, cause symptoms. Of dementia, but some are curable. Could be, you know, vitamin deficiency. All, all those types of things. Um, Linda, what types of platforms and, and methods and procedures do you think need to be considered to support the messaging of a healthy lifestyle with someone who is who is dealing with, you know, some kind of a memory issue or or dementia? Well, I think it's really important that that you be responsive to the individual. And, you know, it may or may not be the choice of that individual uh, as long as they are able to uh, uh, be responsive and not to be uh, determined to be mentally impaired as to whether or not they want the family involved. Mm -hmm. Uh, In some situations, uh, the person, they know if they're having memory issues before generally anybody else does. And so oftentimes they're embarrassed. They don't want the family to know. That's where I had mentioned they chitter-chatter uh, and just ongoing over and over again thinking that they're camouflaging, uh, that they're having uh, memory issues. And, and so I think I think the second area in, in education that would be really helpful is uh, to provide the, the family members, if the patient decides that's appropriate, um, to uh, for support for their stress and to talk about, you know, what is uh, stigmatized within their personal uh, culture and subculture and um, determine in the community, you know, what the interaction may be. There may be no resources. Uh, understanding that the entire country, with the exception of a few metropolitan areas, is a mental health provider shortage area. Huge issues, uh, and I, we don't have time to go on that today, but it's it's generally because of lack of uh, reimbursement. But anyhow, for family caregivers to understand, they can be helpful. Such things as, you know, uh, reminding somebody where their room is, reminding uh, them to pick up their fork, and then say, oh, pick up your fork a couple times, you know, to remind them just to make sure that it isn't embarrassing to the person. But these are things that have been effectively used over the years. And, and one thing I was going to add to uh, on the physical activity, 
there has been research done in regards to the O2 exposure of the brain, and that seems to be uh, 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 the difference between um, uh, cognitive uh, duties in regards to uh, uh, able to continue. It seems to flush it out more, seems to be a benefit. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, they do have treadmills with computer screens on them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So if you if you want to be really active, get on the treadmill, do your computer work while you're walking on that. But but those are the main things I think in regards to mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I, I think the when you're talking about the the stigmas and reducing the stress for for families and the person diagnosed, I think it's really important to get them on the same page and and understanding. You know, I I go around and I speak around the country and. People are just shocked at how simple uh, of techniques can be used. And part of it, I, I think of what I do, I think a big actually portion of what I do is, is get people to look at, at the disease differently. You know, it's just one more disease that we have to adapt to. We've adapted to AIDS and cancer and heart disease and diabetes and all of those things where we can have open conversations and there's not embarrassment and we need to we need to get all parties together to have the conversation so that we can really figure out the best possible plan um, to be able to engage. I think, you know, one of the biggest things is to help people focus on the abilities that are still left because yep. we're all we're all changing. You know, I, I'm not what I used to be. You know, on a lot on a lot of levels, but I, but I'm a lot more on on other areas too. And so, as a person with dementia, and in focusing on uh, on the understanding that not everything is gone, and sometimes we take things away because it's easier on us than than to give them dignity of being able to participate in some way. And when we consciously kind of slow down. And think about how we're caring. Um, I think that can also alleviate a lot of guilt for families when they feel that they haven't given the best care. You know, just I, I don't know. Just slow down sometimes and just think about how would you feel? What would you like? And then have that conversation with that person. It, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be difficult. It, it's just you know, it, it's yeah. just listening. Mm-hmm. The one thing, the one thing that I've noticed it is the most difficult, and sadly, our male uh, pop elders doesn't seem to be a large group of folks, but there is huge implications for male uh, people with memory loss uh, and stigma uh, within a within a family. And if you stop to think about, you know, oftentimes it's uh, uh, the the male who is the head of the family. And for mm-hmm. them to even ask for help, they would never do that. And so there's ways and techniques that, that providers uh, can do, including the family, to to make uh, uh, and help the person so they aren't embarrassed whenever they do need help. And to maybe have a code or something. There's lots of different techniques. Uh, whenever they ha- need something to ask uh, somebody within their family, they can do. And so nobody else knows. I mean, it... it you, providers have to be as crafty as what the people are from hiding their, their memory loss issues. And it's a that's big deal. <laughs> that's a, that's a really a good deal. point because they can hide it. The other thing is, you know, a lot of times, I, and I hear this over and over again, when people go into the doctor, you know, they get their diagnosis, they get another appointment, and, and half of them don't get any resources at all. Um, and they're always told to get their affairs in order. And I think, I think the way we look at our legal affairs, you know, every child who turns 18 should have a power of attorney. You know, this is not something that is just needed in old age. We could be in a car accident or have some kind of health issue or be attacked or whatever, where we need that backup. And we don't have these conversations at an early age. It should be just good, uh, the good um, business of, of living life well, being smart. And instead, we've wrapped it in this package of fear and said, no, you really don't have to look at that until you really, really need it. You know, well, no one knows when they're really, really going to need it. And I think that would help to reduce some of the stigmas um, and and make us all more equal at any age, because we don't know what's going to happen to any of us at any time. 
Well, and, and once adults become vulnerable uh, for whatever reason, uh, that that makes it wide open. And it just saddens me some of the predatory things that, that people do uh, now to our elders. And some uh, have had their life savings stolen from them. Uh, I mean, there's just horrible things. Uh, adult mm-hmm. abuse uh, is is rising, unfortunately. Um, so uh, real concerns about that and protection. You know, our social services uh, uh, within our counties, at least we have counties in Minnesota, uh, is an issue. But that's one thing that can be very embarrassing because rural people do not, quote, accept public health. Mm-hmm. That's demeaning to them because it's deemed to be welfare, and we don't need welfare, quote, unquote, and it goes on and on. And and so that's another sensitive area. But this vulnerability of of adults, uh, I think, is going to get much worse before it gets better, given some of the uh, technology uh, scams that are out there now. I've had my identity stolen once, and and it's just just awful. And, And understanding that. You know, other people that may have some cognition issues uh, could be very easily scammed to, oh, well, we just need your Social Security number and we'll send you whatever. I mean, that happens all the time. Yeah, I had a, I had a good friend whose uh, mom had that issue and she was living in a senior community um, with a bank in it. And the daughter had talked to the bank, you know, she was power of attorney and they said, well, until she's pulled off the account and it's not in her name, she can come and get as much money out of here as she wants. And, you know, they were trying to be respectful of the mom and she got taken over and over and over and over oh. again. It was just. It was just ridiculous because she'd get on the list of the scammers and then there would be another another one, you know, that would come. Yeah, it's, it's bad stuff. Yeah. Um, why do you think it's so important to address the, the well-being of individuals in a, in a real comprehensive manner, Linda? Well, general wellness uh, and limits on risky behaviors and we have some data on risky behaviors, not only from our youngsters with the CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Survey, but with the same survey that's, that's provided to adults. Uh, sadly, nobody nobody meshes the two between. But the adult, uh, it's called the BRFSS, a Behavioral Risk Survey Factor. Forget now what the SS stands for. But regardless, you know, we need to to really look at what those risky behaviors are because that makes a huge difference and so if you're living a life where where, you know you've got some memory issues and you're also practicing uh, uh, risky life behaviors as you suggest you know with with not having mechanisms built in for bank accounts and things like that uh, it it is a big deal and the knowledge the knowledge that we need there uh, and support for uh, you know knowing what those risky behaviors are uh, is really important what I did for my mother uh, in later years is I visited with the bank, and I had on her checks. At that time, she didn't have any credit cards or didn't use them, and I put uh, maximum limit $300. Well, mm-hmm. that slowed down a lot of people, and because mm-hmm. you know, $300 is hardly worth the aggravation if you get caught. And so there's other techniques that, that can be used, and that's something I think that um, your organization could help uh, uh, people to understand, just some of those safeguards before, you know, uh, they've been abused uh, uh, financially, at least. Um, and then just helping people to learn and uh, be aware of what the services and resources are uh, for that vulnerability and, and how to be safe in their communities. Um, the uh, the county where uh, uh, I, I live up north, they actually put out an awareness um, a pamphlet uh, actually, it was a little manual, and it provided all the information where, where elders could seek help, and it had all sorts of lists of things. I just wish that uh, on TV, some of our PSA uh, public service announcements, uh, we could do similar things like that, but nobody mm-hmm. does. And, and so, especially in rural communities, I mean, uh, people that go to church may see each other on Sunday. People that uh, live so far out that it's a hardship to get to any habitated area. I mean, these are big deals. And, and so to to be able to help people understand where they can go, maybe they know they have uh, memory loss. Well, where do you go? I'm telling you, where yeah. I live up north, it's like one place. But regardless, there's other uh, events uh, within, uh, and I live on a reservation, but um, 
whenever we were visiting earlier, uh, most tribes have uh, elderly nutrition programs and they have uh, congregate uh, meals. Some of the meals are delivered to the homes. It just depends on, on the person. But, you know, there, there's generally in these small little villages a, um, a area where the, the meals are cooked and prepared and would be a perfect opportunity for networking there uh, uh, with each other just by themselves after, you know, they, they uh, uh, had a little bit of facilitation to develop that. But groups of folks, and I know, Lori, you and I have talked about memory cafes. I think that is the best thing ever. And yeah. to help people to be more relaxed, and you got to talk about it. You know, if it's already stigmatized, by talking about it, you learn ways and, and you learn coping mechanisms uh, to deal with issues. And I just think that's just the best thing ever. Yeah, the uh, the ones that I've been involved with have been, uh, you know, we thought we were going to do a lot of programming and we were going to, you know, have the room all ready and set up, you know, when they got there because that's what you do. And and then we found out, no, that, you know, when you go over to a friend's house, you, you kind of help, you know, you hang out in the kitchen. What can I do, you know, to help, yeah. help push things along? And people still wanted that. So we stopped putting tables together and and let them be part of that because they that made them feel good. It made them feel part of the group. Um, we we found that they really didn't want to be talked to. They wanted to talk with. They wanted to build a sense of community and, and have that peer interaction. So, you know, um, the ones that I do, I say, you know, dementia brings us together, but it's kind of like a bowling league or a bridge club. You don't show up for the equipment. You show up kind of for the giggles you know, and the, and the friendships. And so we talk about everything that's going on in people's lives. And, you know, within that dementia comes up, but it doesn't, it doesn't take over. And so sometimes I leave after two, two hours and my cheeks are sore because we've laughed so much, you know, <laughs> and, and that is so healthy because people forget to have fun and to lighten up and, you know, it, it's just about learning how to adapt. And I mean, they've shared stories that they've never told any other family members or friends, but they've discussed them in that group. And it's like, what a release and a, and a relief. And then other people can come out and say they, they've never shared it either. And it's just, it, it, it just relieves that pressure valve and um, makes people not feel ashamed or alone or, or any of that. You know, it's just, it's, it's nice to have peers. And that's really what that group is is about. It's about um, developing community. It's not um, a stringent, you know, group. One of the things they said is we don't want an eight week course. And then we're kicked to the curb and we got to start all over again. You know, uh, they they stay a lot of times even after their loved one has passed because they need the support from the group, and yet they still have so much to still give to people participating in it because they've they've gone the journey and now they're in a, a different end and and they they leave when it when they're ready to you know it, it's not it, it isn't a demanding thing we've had people come to those groups too without a person um diagnosed because they're not ready to come but the the care partner comes and gets information and then when that person's ready you know they both attend or vice versa we've had the person with dementia come and their their care partner wasn't ready to um we we've played it very fluid to make sure that we're meeting our community's needs in in terms of what it is they want i think those rigid rules get us in trouble sometimes but maybe i'm just a rule breaker i don't know <laughs> but, but you yeah, know they're... Lori, you you hit the most important phrase to talk with mm-hmm. not to and even mm-hmm. whenever I used to see patients, I would even my students, I don't talk to them, I talk with them because I can learn stuff from them too. The same thing oh with gosh. elders or any patient. And, and so that is such a key respectful factor. And you know, sometimes universities have a uh, bad uh, misnomer, and and some of our federal agencies certainly do. Uh, they come in and do it to you, is what we refer to it, uh, at least in Indian country. And we all know how well that works. Uh, but just talking with uh, is a huge, huge deal. Granted, it takes more time. You can't go go visit somewhere and wham, bam, you're gone, your lecture's done. No, nope, no, nope, that's not going to get you anywhere. But talking no. with is so key. 
It is. And and as a facilitator, I train other facilitators, don't always answer the question. Let the group answer first, and then you fill in. You know, yeah. you're, a, you're a facilitator. You're not a trainer in this role. And there's a big, big difference. Um, and then it really helps people, I think, get comfortable when they're sharing because a lot of times people come in and go, well, I don't know, you know, what do I know? I don't know anything. And it's like you've been on this journey, even if it's two months longer than Bob and Betty over here, you know more. You still have something to share. And they they realize that. And, you know, people want to help the next guy. And, and you know, we all, I think, have to get in the, the mindset that there's always more to learn. And that yeah. any relationship is a give and take. And if we go in being relationship-based, that's exactly what happens. And these, these I mean, deep, deep friendships are, are developed so easily and so quickly. And they, you know, they say over and over again, this is my lifeline. You know, it's, it's wonderful for, uh, for all sides. Um, to be able to participate, I would I would laugh too because some would say, well, you know, you you can't have them in the same group. You know, a person that's diagnosed <laughs> along with their care partner. I'm like, well, where the heck do you think they are the rest of the day? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, come on, get over yourselves. Yeah. You know, there and there yeah. are other there are other groups that can meet those needs, but. Um, you know, that's what I love about the memory cafes is they're pretty fluid. Some of them have activities, some do music, some um, go out on walking groups. And, and then there's others like ours that just want to sit and talk. Um, there's one in Arizona where they just go out to a restaurant and they all buy their own dinner and they just socialize. It's just kind of a, a get together. There's absolutely no structure. You just show up and you sit and you talk with whoever you want to. And, um, you know, so there's no right or wrong. It's just meet the needs, listen and meet the needs and ask the question repeatedly. Is there anything we need to change with this? What do you want? You know, it, it just isn't that tough. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> well, and, 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 and your model for, uh, within, uh, groups, um, you're the outsider generally. And, and mm-hmm. uh, one should never pretend to be the know-it-all. And what I teach my students in a cultural humility class is, there is no way on earth I can teach you every culture in the world, but I can teach you methods. And so uh, I suggest to them uh, primarily whenever they do community gatherings, uh, they have this background. We do from all over the world. We do New Zealand, Australia, Canada, uh, anywhere, uh, uh, history in different cultural influences. And mm-hmm. so I, I share with them that, that while you may be facilitating, the audience leads you. And you may yep. ask probing questions to help elicit uh, some of the information that they didn't know they had uh, to make a more fulfilling meeting. But that's what they're there for, not to tell anybody anything, but to use their professional expertise to help empower that particular community. Yeah, yeah. Well, and none of us want to be fixed or told we're broken. You know, we 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 want yeah. we we want support. So again, using the language of you know even just switching from that word um, that we love to use. Oh, it's a behavior. You know, with dementia, and I ask people all the time, well, what does that mean to you? Are you doing something good when somebody tells you that? Well, well, no. Well, how does it feel when you're told you have a behavior? And they're like, oh, my gosh, I, I never realized how much we talk like that, you know. And, and I tell them that, you know, we're the ones with the, the cognitive abilities that haven't been interfered with. So we're the ones that have to look for the clues and the signals. So that, that behavior is just a reaction that says something's off. Something's not working for them, and they can't tell us any other way. And, um, you know, to to not go to the blame and shame, but go to the, how do we make this better? You know, and and take in all those senses of what's going on. Linda, I can't believe how fast this is going. We only have about 10 minutes left and I could talk to you all day. Um, (laughs) So I I really want to ask, because you, I know you work a lot with the American Indian elders. And can you tell us what are some of their needs for cultural sensitivity in healthcare and in, in services? Because I think it's a very underserved population and, you know, we, we need to work them in um, and we need to do better. What can we do? 
Well, I think it's important that the public understand uh, where where American Indians came from. And it kind of all starts, at least uh, the written history, whenever our friend Columbus uh, hit the shores. And at that particular time, it's estimated there's about 10 million American Indians uh, within the uh, lower 48 uh, area. And by uh, uh, 1850, there was less than a quarter of a million. So that was wow. a, a lot of folks. Uh, that were killed. There's been bounty on Indians' heads for a lot of years, including the first governor of Minnesota. Governor Ramsey mm. had a bounty on Indians' heads. And then uh, there's other atrocities that happened. But it, what it amounts to is genocide, purposeful uh, 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 exposure to diseases like trachoma. Uh, whenever the War Department was administering services uh, for Indian people, uh, basically where health services started, they uh, contaminated them with trachoma just to see, you know, how far it would go and use them as guinea pigs. And, and just it, throughout history, it's just awful. And, and people don't understand. And, and secondly, that um, uh, there's 573 federally recognized tribes currently. Each of those tribes has their own constitution. And that, uh, that sort of um, administration happened back in the 70s. Uh, but regardless, so each tribe has their own elected uh, group of uh, leaders, and uh, uh, people can enroll uh, depending on whatever the uh, criteria is uh, for blood quantum. And the important thing in, in regards to health services, and I use the term services and care, I think I think it's important that we just don't focus on, on care because that kind of negates uh, public health and certainly negates uh, behavioral health services, but anyhow, uh, health and, and uh, equity uh, issues that we have uh, are a big deal. So understand we have a limited time. I would like your readers to consider this, that each person uh, uh, that is deemed to be an American Indian, however they want to be defined as that and what their criteria is, they are a member of a family. Secondly, by law, they are a dual citizen. In other words, they're a citizen of the United States of America and a citizen of their respective tribes. Oftentimes, uh, uh, and I'll give you an example of my own family. I have four kids. Uh, two of them uh, uh, are spiritual uh, uh, for, for uh, traditional, and two of them are Western uh, religion. And, and so uh, within families, I mean, you can have huge differences like that. And mm-hmm. understand the language preference. There's only one tribe right now that uh, has monolingual uh, speakers left, and that's the Navajo Nation. But a lot of elders, uh, whenever you go to the uh, the eating centers, uh, are speaking their uh, original language, and that may be of comfort for, to them. But ask what the preference is. Also, understanding that 100% of the American Indians in this country have historical and that relates back to the boarding schools, and we still see that impact today because we have uh, uh, youngsters that are becoming parents and they don't, do not know how to be parents because their parents were in boarding school, so they couldn't learn from, from their parents, and it, it just continues on. And, and so given all the uh, uh, genocide and forced assimilation, uh, we have an entire population which uh, may or may not have had um, fruitful experiences with health services. And the population is certainly apprehensive uh, about uh, seeking uh, services um, in the public sector. And I can tell you personally that uh, uh, I've had uh, some orthopedic issues. Uh, I get treated like I'm drug-seeking to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh. And, and it irritates, it just irritates me. And, uh, it's just this this uh, bigotry that, that's happening in regards uh, to American Indians in this country is just awful. But I don't think people know the history. We yeah. don't we don't want any we don't want any concessions. Oh, you know, poor you know, we don't care about that. We want to be recognized uh, on an equal status. And in my opinion, today we are not. Yeah. So those are some things to be sensitive to. Well, that that is wonderful. I do want to sneak one more question in here um, because I think it's I think it's so critical of why knowing someone's culture is so important in order to serve them, and then how how to communicate 
with a patient or a client, whatever term you want to use. Um, you you talk kind of a, about that mult, what I call multi-sensory piece, where it's not just verbal communication. Can you explain a little bit more about that face-to-face and body language and gestures and, and all of that, your thoughts there? Sure. Uh, it's really important that understanding that each provider has their own subculture that, that they have been taught since they were able to observe uh, things in the world. And so as a provider grows up, they categorize things differently. Everybody has that ability to do that. So some, if you're doing a, a visit with folks, they may be sensitive to touch. They may have to have a big space uh, as proximity uh, if you're visiting with them. Uh, there's issues with gender. Uh, some people, uh, females may not want to see a male doctor and vice versa. Uh, but, but it's really important to start to ask. Whenever, you, whenever the provider or you're doing services for folks, Ask, was this okay to to ask this question? Is this okay to uh, uh, visit with you uh, while I'm sitting down? Uh, Understanding one of the the biggest myths, well, it's sort of a myth, but uh, whenever I used to hire uh, uh, primary care providers, uh, they'd come to my office and they're complaining, yeah, the patient won't even look at me. I'm like, yeah? And they're just like (laughs) standing there. I says, well, they're showing you respect. And, and, and so mm-hmm. the eye-to-eye contact uh, in a lot of particular Indian populations, I don't know if it's from the history of, of being uh, of having negative experiences with health providers, but they don't look at you. And, mm-hmm. and I get criticized personally, and I apologize to my students. I say, hey, you know, it, it, you don't want me to look you eyeball to eyeball because that means I'm ready to do something. But, but uh, seriously, um, that's the way I was brought up, and it is disrespectful. So there's different things within, you know, like I said, there's 573 federally recognized tribes, differences within all of those. And it's just simple to ask. If you uh, approach or you say something and you see the person kind of have kind of a squiggly or a wiggly uh, uh, reaction, well, maybe we better, you know, research this a little bit more. And granted, you'll never get it in the eight minutes so that you get to have with a uh, patient, but sometimes you just got to break the rules. Yeah. And uh, but that is so it is so important that the provider knows their own culture, mm-hmm. and then to respect others. Yeah, and, and to listen, just to listen. Sometimes you know you go in and you're just being talked to or talked at, and yep. people are like you know, trying to be heard, and when they feel disrespected, they're going to pull away. So, yeah, so much to learn. Well, Linda, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, Dr. Linda Frizzle can be uh, contacted at the University of Minnesota in the dean's office, and we've got all the contact information there, a couple of emails, phone number, um, and then address, too, to write to. So please check her out. She is just uh, full, full of knowledge, and just have, you just have a heart of gold. I just adore talking with you because you're you're so conscious about keeping the the playing field fluid and equal, and and I adore that about you. I mean, you you see the need so clearly, and we just we just need to get more people to see as clearly and distinctly as you do the importance of respect and dignity for for all. Because if if people don't feel respected, um, we can't help them through this process. We can't help. We're just adding, um, adding to their journey of stress. And we all know stress is not uh, not a friend to any form of dementia. Um, it's really not a, a good form for any of us. Period. <laughs> from a, from a health standpoint, any any last comment that you want to make? We got about a minute left. Um, I, I just really, truly, I feel honored to be asked uh, to to talk with you on this, and uh, I I love to mentor. I have a number of students that I mentor, and as an elder, it is my responsibility uh, to help out folks uh, to understand. And so I I gladly accept that responsibility. And to everybody out there, just please, please, please uh, do what you can to practice cultural humility because it makes all of the difference in the world. Understanding that the age group that we're working with that has memory issues is a is a cohort of folks that would never 
do anything wrong knowingly. So if they are in the wrong health plan and they go to uh, see a provider, their old provider, oh, they're not in the health plan, they're told that point blank, you think they'll ever come back? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the sad reality. And uh, they were going to uh, auto-enroll Medicare patients, and I quick testified to that deal that people would rather self-terminate before ever doing something that was wrong. So it's a very proud group of people. Uh, they're very thank sincere. you so much. We've got to wrap up here, Linda. But thank you so much. Appreciate your time You're quite today. Welcome. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families, too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.